Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord and those listening online. Good morning to you also. We are in the gospel according to Mark. And if you have your Bibles, please turn turn to Mark's gospel, chapter six. And we will in one moment stand and take verses one through 13. Please stand for the reading of God's word. If you are at home, I would encourage you, if you can, to also stand with us. Beginning at verse 1, Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joses, Judas, and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit, teaching. And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Also, he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with, anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Please be seated. The rejection, that's what we are considering this morning. And it is, of course, something that can make you very bitter. To be rejected. It is, there's nothing pleasant about it whatsoever. And uh, before becoming a pastor, I seldom experienced rejection. I mean, here and there you get it, but as a pastor, it's almost routine. It is one of the strongest draws for retirement. <laughs> and every pastor learns that many who loved him one day will be rejecting him another day. And this is the case with Apostle Paul. Paul to the Galatians says, What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. And he says to them in the next verse, Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? He was hurt. He knew they loved him. He certainly loved them. And then they turned on him. This is the case with our Lord. When they rejected him here at Nazareth, it hurt. 
we we read it. It's just a text, you know, and they and they they mocked him. They were offended by, him, but it, it hurt his feelings. But that's not what he was after. You know, there can be some pretty mean people that go to church regularly, read their Bibles, know their scriptures. They can serve. Paul said to Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. We need to hear these things. We need to be on guard against these things. Those who sour and then go infect others and want them to be soured too. That's what was going on here in Nazareth. Oh, Nazareth, Nazareth. He said that about Jerusalem, but he could say it about this hometown also. In this sixth chapter, we read about him being rejected by the people he grew up with. We read about him then sending out the twelve, which is a significant part of his rejection because he says in that sending of the twelve out, he says, with or without you, the work goes on. You think you're going to reject me and that's it? The church shuts down? You think I stop preaching because you've rejected me? It continues. He sends out the twelve. We will later, not this morning, read of the murder of John the Baptist and the feeding of the 5,000. We read of Jesus walking on the water, and then we read about him crossing again to the east side of Jordan and doing miracles there from where he was chased away from previously. The work goes on. Feelings hurt or not, the rejection should never be enough to knock us out. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Struck down, but not destroyed. Persecuted, but not forsaken. This is the Christian life. So make it count. And that's what I try to do. I ask the Lord for a surge. I want to make these things count. And by that, punish the agenda of hell. Should it be any other way? Well, we look again at verse 1. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. What, what a beautiful picture. That's what disciples are supposed to do. They're supposed to follow Jesus. They followed him in the storm. We read about that in chapter 4. Then there was the maniac, and they were there with him for that one too. Then the, the solutions to disease and death. There was Christ. And now they're here with him for the rejection. They're still with him. The, the word loyalty... It's supposed to mean something in our lives. It's not supposed to be a word we use for someone else. Are we loyal? Or at the first sight of pressure, do we shatter? Do we crumble? Do we collapse? Do we turn carnal at the snap of a finger? Alexander did me much harm. There's a lot of loyalty going on there. At one point, you would have given your eyes for me. Now I'm your enemy because I don't do it your way. This is life. Nazareth, his hometown, just 20 miles from Capernaum where he had done so many miracles, healed so many people, raised the dead, and he wasn't finished doing miracles, raising the dead. This is his second rejection in Nazareth. Luke tells us about the first one. He says they were going to throw him off a cliff. They were so upset. So he goes back to Nazareth about a year later and preaches again. Sort of like when Paul 
was stoned at Derby, Lystra Derby. He gets up, he goes back into the city. I would have taken automatic weapons with me as something. If I'm going back into the city where they just stoned me, what an example we have in these characters from Scripture. So yes, Luke records the first visit at the beginning of his more public ministry. They're there in Galilee. Matthew and Mark tell the story of his second visit to Nazareth. It took place near the end of his Galilean ministry. And I'll give a... Well, Mark skips over the Lord's Judean ministry. So here's a brief overview of the ministry of Christ. Is that when he first started, he was, he was obscure, raised in Nazareth. No one knew anything about him. He goes into the wilderness by himself, and there he faces the devil. It's an obscure part of his ministry and his life. And then he comes on the scene, and he does miracles, and this is a time of popularity. The people just love him. And then the opposition that is spearheaded by the religious intelligentsia, the know-it-alls, the gatekeepers, and then his resurrection and his ascension. His early Judean ministry, which, only, which John really capitalizes on, but Mark skips over. His Galilean ministry then comes next, where we are now. Then another Judean ministry when he goes back into the territory of Judea, including the Jerusalem area. His Perean ministry across on the east side of the Sea of Galilee again, and then finally back to Judea. So he's moving all around. But the whole time he's moving, he, he, he peaks. He, everybody loves him, and then it starts to come down. And that had to hurt. He knew it, but doesn't take away the hurt. He still came in, in his humanity. His disciples, they followed him to, on his visit home. Verse 2 now, because still ministry. It's not just, hey, everybody, I'm back. This is ministry. He is there to reach souls with the truth. Verse 2 And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many, hearing him, were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Luke tells us in chapter 4 of Luke's gospel, in verse 16, that it was his custom long before to come into the synagogue and, and, and teach. So he was from, they were familiar with him. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. This is his first visit, or the first time he was thrown out. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And of course, that's where he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he, I'm the fulfillment of that. And they were incensed. Well, again, you now he's going back. They're astonished, but this isn't the good kind of astonishment. This is the bad kind. They were in shock that he would dare stand before them and say whatever it is he was saying with the authority that he said it, that he would dare perform such miracles, which they knew all about by this time. I mean, you just don't raise someone from the dead and keep that kind of thing hidden. It was out there. So they resisted and they rejected his source of knowledge and his ability. Ignoring the scriptural teachings, ignoring, ignoring the consistency with Moses and Elijah and Isaiah and all the other prophets of scripture. They, that did not matter. Some never give the pastor the benefit of the doubt. 
They wouldn't give it to him. They wouldn't, you know, the minute an accusation rises up, it's not, oh, I don't believe that. It's, really? And it took on like wildfire here. You would love, you know, Paul at least. There were times when Paul, the, the congregation was divided. Some of them wanted to hear it, some of them did not. At one point, the Gentiles said, we want this. If the Jews don't want it, give it to us. It says that such mighty works are performed by his hands. This is what they were astonished by at one of the things. They rejected his signs and wonders. It wasn't enough. The miracles were not enough. Well, it wouldn't be enough for Judas Iscariot, would it? It's amazing how messed up people can think. Loyalty would have helped. Just a dose of loyalty. Let's remain loyal to the word. Let's remain loyal to the truth. That are put before us. These miracles that they were questioning... The, the, or, the origin of them, the source of them, they should have sealed for them his Messiahship. They should have said, that's what Isaiah was talking about. Now he's doing it. This is Messiah. Isaiah 42, 7. Isaiah speaks of the Messiah. He says, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house, spiritually in bondage and liberating them. Now, Isaiah is notorious for weaving the prophecies of Messiah into both uh, comings of Christ. There is, he, he really has the kingdom age in mind, but woven into that is the first coming of Christ, which the Old Testament writers really didn't understand. They had no knowledge of the church. They saw Israel and God's kingdom. But Christ comes and he applies the first coming from the prophecies of Isaiah to himself. He begins to open it up, to expound upon these things. But there were two comings of the Messiah, which even the apostles didn't get until much later. And so Jesus said in John 15, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. So Christ is saying, I've done the things the prophets said that the Messiah would do. And they know this. And they rejected it anyway. You know how the flesh can be. You can see what's right and refuse to respond to it in the right way. And reject it. And this is what they were doing. His miracles demonstrated that the second kingdom, the millennial age kingdom, would be established, and it was starting right here in person with him, that Satan's kingdom was going to be overthrown, and it started now in front of their eyes. Matthew 12, 28. But if, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And this is the beginning of what the prophets were talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We read this from Paul. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. That is human rule and authority and power. Because he will be the authority and power. And so there are the two comings. They're, they're woven into the prophets, as I said. But they should have picked up on it. Because his signs and wonder was so remarkably 
extraordinary. His preaching was so in line with the prophets, they had no reason to doubt him. And for this, he says, Sodom and Gomorrah will come out better than you because they didn't see this and you did. And you tossed it to the wind. Verse 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joses, Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters with us? So they were offended at him. They knew his family well. They knew all the boys. Because the boys came to the synagogue. In fact, the boys were siding with Judaism against their brother, against the Christ. Of course, their stepbrother or half-brother, according to the flesh. Mark is the only gospel where Jesus himself is called a carpenter. Matthew says, son of a carpenter. They saw him as a mere blue-collar worker. That was his rank, and he was to be stuck there. He was not to come out of that rank and be some teacher of the word to them. It was fine if he went to the synagogue and he just read scripture to them, but to apply it to himself, to apply it to them, they were astonished at this. Many still consider him a mere carpenter. Boy, are they going to be surprised when they breathe their last breath and find out He is more than a carpenter. He is more than anything anyone could ever fully know. So they were not impressed by his sermon because they were not impressed by his status, his social status. The caste system, it worked for them in their little heads and their little minds. It was small thinking, and people still do it in Christianity today. What seminary did you go to? The seminary of give you a knuckle sandwich. That's the seminary I went to. I mean, they do. It's, 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 it's shameful because the scripture speaks on this thing. It does not pass by. And they perceived that these were not educated men, but they had been with Jesus. That's what they said about Peter and the apostles. And that's what we want them to say about us, no matter what our background, no matter how well-educated or not so well-educated we may be. That is not the issue. The issue is what do we say about Jesus Christ from his word That's what matters. Imagine, imagine if you as a parent had to, you know, there's a, you know, well, well, what, what level parent are you? What, you know, how high up the ladder have you gone as a parent? You know, some try to sneak that in anyway, but we're not going to go into that. So they weren't impressed because some want more than truth. They're not satisfied with just Bible teaching. They're not satisfied with just the truth of the word. They want something else, even if they don't know what it is. And their wants should not be met under those terms. They say here that he was the son of Mary. This is the only place in the New Testament where uh, Jesus is referred to as the son of Mary. Now, Joseph and Mary were of royal heritage. They were of the line of, of, of David. But it no longer mattered to the rest of the people in Nazareth at this time. It did really nothing for them in that society. And the brother of James, Joses, Judas, and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us. These are Mary's other children to which she gave birth after her firstborn. You do not call someone a firstborn if there are no more borns. You would say her only child. 
We see that in Scripture. When someone's child was sick or dying, it was their only child. And that distinction is important. We just can't see Joseph taking Mary with the baby Jesus uh, into Egypt with six other kids and then back out. And these things are not realistic because they didn't happen that way. And I know there are those that want to say Mary had no other children. But she, that's not what the Bible says. James is the author of the epistle of James. Joses, it's a form of Joseph. So they named him after uh, their father. Uh, Judas, uh, of course, this is not Judas Iscariot. This is Jude, who is the author of uh, Jude's epistle. It says here in verse 3, so they were offended at him. Last time, they were really offended, trying to kill him. But they were arrogant. They were critical. They were self-impressed. They were so thrilled with themselves and the system that they had that nothing else could get in, not even from God. The system was closed. Isaiah 53, over 700 years earlier, Isaiah called it. He said, for he shall grow up before them as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, pause there, a root out of dry ground owes nothing to the things around it because they're not contributing anything to it. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He personified, Isaiah does, the people here in Nazareth and other parts of Israel, but right now here in Nazareth. He's not attractive to them. There's nothing they see in him that is appealing. No matter what he's preaching, no matter what he's doing, we have to, and we see this today, do we not? If you are, you can win a a political office if you just look like they like you. That's all you need. It doesn't matter what you say, what you do. Just do you appeal to us? And he did not appear, appeal to them. There is no beauty that we should desire him. Quite profound. Men so out of touch with God that they were incapable of appreciating the beauty of God when face to face with it. May it never happen to us. May we never be so spiritually dense that the light of God cannot get in. He owed them nothing. They contributed nothing to his being. And that bothered them. They wanted to be the ones that stamped approval. Okay, he's one of us. Okay, he's, you know. if They wanted to say, well, if he was a rabbi's son, they would have been more receptive. But a carpenter's son. John seven fifteen, and the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters having never studied? We didn't teach him, so how could he know anything? Again, still practiced to this day. Are these not the dumbest reasons for rejecting truth? Well, your family's here with us. We know them, so we reject you. Well, maybe you've got a bad family like that. But of course, his family was, it was absolutely, they sided with these people. How far they sided with them, we're not sure. Mary, of course, I don't believe, was really into it. But remember, they thought he had lost his mind, and they all went to collect him that day. And, of course, he would not be collected by them or anyone else. And so here, these in Nazareth, they made up a criteria for preaching truth and doing signs and wonders from God. And a carpenter's son was not allowed to be a part of it. His rank was too low. Today, they set other silly rules, oftentimes, which have nothing to do with doctrine or truth. 
And uh, there's really not a lot anybody can do to stop it except on the individual level. And so they called him the carpenter. What right had they to stunt his growth? What right had they to say, that's as far as you can go. Listen, if you want to build things, if you want to, you know, do some woodworking for us, we'll, we'd love to hear what you have to say about your craft. But truth about God, we're not interested in it coming from you. And so he was deemed out of his class. Uh, verse 4, we could just go on and on about his pedigree and his background, which was divine from eternity past, and they missed it. But we are getting it, and we are entrusted with trying to communicate this to those who don't get it. May we never lose sight of, of our role, our mission. What is my role here on earth? What is my mission? To reach the lost, to to be able to reach the lost. What goes into that able, that ability, the knowledge of the word, love and grace? Oh no, some just want a pharisaical view. I know the Bible better than you. I am more righteous than you. One reason why we don't encourage children to be baptized is because they haven't been on the battlefield yet. And they will be. As they get older, they'll be face to face with challenges to their faith. We're going to find out if they're going to be Pharisees or not. We're going to find out if they're going to listen to the devil at a faster rate than listening to the Holy Spirit. And we don't want to cause this stampede of, well, you know, my, uh, you know, that peer pressure. You did it, so I'm going to do it. Now, I'm not saying we prohibit anyone from being baptized. I'm just saying we encourage those who are really determined. I know the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if a two-year-old could come up to me and say, I know who Jesus is. He is my Lord and he is my Savior. What prohibits me from being baptized? I'd pick that little character up and I'd soak him. <laughs> but they've got to get there. And they've got to be, you know, face-to-face. And I don't know for you, when I, my time to be baptized, I knew who Jesus was and I knew who I was not. And I knew who, what he could make me one day. And... To, to be able to, with authority, say, here is water. What prohibits me? Nothing, if you believe. This is our heritage given to us by God, by Christ. It is valuable. You know, in Iran today, they have to sneak out to get baptized. They go into other countries to get baptized. Because if anybody finds out what's going on with them in Jesus Christ, they are going to suffer persecution in some form. Verse 4, But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now this is a proverb, not intended to be a theological fact across the board. Because there are, of course, others in scriptures that were accepted by them. You know, Moses, you know, both his older brother and older sister Aaron and Miriam, they, they submitted to his authority. They had some hiccups there, but overall they, they were submitted. It's not intended to be, you know, the case all the time. The, the English equivalent of this is familiarity breeds contempt. You get so used to somebody being nice and kind that you don't even appreciate it. I mean, Christ, living with these boys and these daughters, they had nothing against him. Why would they side against him? In the end, by the time we get to Acts chapter 1, we see them all believers, but 
For now, they're not with him. They could not appreciate his goodness. I hope that's not me. I hope I'm not uh, treating someone with contempt that I should be honoring. I hope I'm not that person that is, is, you know, bites the hand that feeds them. Here's someone trying to help you along, make you stronger, give you an opportunity, and then you turn on them because you don't know what loyalty is. Every Christian should know what loyalty is because they have to fight to keep it. It's not loyalty if you can just, you know, dismiss it at, at, at a whim. And if, you, if you're going to turn against something, have, a, have your facts lined up. Be right. Not your emotions, your feelings were hurt or something like that. I know it's tough when your feelings get hurt. Oh, speaking of feelings, Isaiah 53, again, he was despised and rejected by men. Woohoo! That had to be fun! Of course it was not. No matter who, Christ in the flesh, it was not a beautiful thing. And so Isaiah continues, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He knew how to let his heart be broken and stay focused on what he was supposed to do nonetheless. Do you know how hard that is? you know how easy it is to say, I quit, I give up, I'm done. What does he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I can call... Twelve legions of angels and put an end to this silly stuff right now. That's why he didn't send me to be the Savior. (laughs) I would have called 24 legions to make sure the job was thorough. Now, of course, that's the flesh speaking. But we understand the intensity behind these simple words. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with griefs. And we hid, as it were. Our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. They missed it. They blew it. It was right there, eye to eye, and they missed it. And some of us are the same way. There are people that take care of us, that love us, that look out for us, that pray for us, that work with us, and, and we just don't appreciate them. Not, I'm not saying all of us are like that, but all of us have the potential to be that way. And some of us are like that from time to time. And I hope none of us are like that all the time. Samuel experienced this rejection. Yahweh said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, on that matter. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. How that must have been just a javelin in the belly of the, of the Lord. They've rejected me, Samuel. Samuel saying, I know, but I feel like I'm rejected too. Because he was. He was that attached to God. You didn't get to reject God without rejecting Samuel. And Samuel felt it. David, how many psalms does David write? You get to think, David, does everybody hate you? Because every psalm is like, oh, they're after me. The bulls of Bashan have surrounded me because he understood. He got it. I think sometimes he wrote vicariously. He wrote on behalf of someone else who he knew was suffering. And he put it down in his writing because he knew it himself. He experienced it firsthand and often enough. He knew that there were people that were not loyal to him as king. Even though he was loyal to Saul, the maniac of Gibeah. So disloyal to the honorable, yet 
They tolerated and even celebrated fools. Paul had to put up with this. Remember, what is this morning's theme? The rejection. Paul says this to the Corinthians, to some of them. Because remember, in the Corinthian church, you had the wackos who he needed to bring down, which I believe he did. Then you had the troublemakers, and then you had the solid believers. That's the Corinthian church. And he, he writes this to them. To the group, one of these things, uh, if the shoe fits, wear it kind of a thing. Uh, But in grace and love, not a mean spirit, if the shoe fits, wear it. It's like, listen, if this is you and you see that, then fix it. That's the idea with love. He says, for you put up with fools gladly. Now, you all don't do that. Since you yourselves are wise, for you put up. With it, if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one slaps you in the face, that's what he says, 2 Corinthians 11, 19 and 20. Where's the discernment? You let people abuse you, but a righteous teacher comes along and you'll have none of that. You get the sarcasm? It's not sardonic. He's not trying to wound them. He's trying to snap them out of it. What could they say when they read that? It hurt Paul to write that. He says, you're putting up with these people and you're attacking me. Paul tried. He made a quick trip to Corinth to try to fix things. It it was a disaster. He started that church. How did that happen? The great apostle Paul, who else was teaching like Paul? Who else was doing miracles like Paul? Who else was handpicked like Paul? How dare somebody reject him? And they did. Verse 5, let me pause here. When I was preparing for this, I said, Lord, I do not want this to be a sneaky autobiography of the sufferings of a pastor. I want this to remain true. But let me tell you what happened to me once. I'm kidding. (laughs) Because it's not just for pastors. It's for all of us. If my Lord had his feelings hurt, I want to know how he dealt with it. If Paul had his feelings stepped on in the interest of his Lord, I want to know what he did with it. Because here's Paul praying for these people, loving them, with them in sickness, with them in lawsuits, with them in whatever they had to deal with them as slaves. And many of them turned on him nonetheless. Verse 5. Now he could do no mighty works there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. Thank you, Lord. He was still the Lord says, okay, fine. You don't believe, but this one does. And this one's not going to suffer because you don't believe. And he ministered to them. Stephen, Stephen, in some of his last words, it cost him to correct the guilty, did it not? It cost him his life. He said, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and years, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. May it not be us. May we not resist the Holy Spirit. Ananias, when when he was sent to Paul to minister to him and to then baptize him, he did not resist. He just questions, Lord, this guy's killing Christians. Are you sure you want me to? We got the right guy. I just want to make sure I understand this. I don't want to go to the wrong address. <laughs> and, of course, the Lord says that he's a faithful servant of mine. I, you're going to show him how much he's going to suffer for me. And Ananias was off. He says, he's going to suffer, right? <laughs> But anyway, still, verse 5 says, he touched those who believed in spite of those who did not. He touched them. Read again, 
verse 5. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. To be touched by Jesus. Can you imagine? They didn't have the scriptures and the knowledge we have. Verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Now this is the marvel of disappointment. Not delight. This is a negative impression they left on him. This, he, he didn't go, wow, that's how you do it. It was, wow, that was bad. Uh, they admitted to the miracles. They admitted to the teachings. And they still turned on me like that. And those who rejected him, they couldn't stop him. That's the lesson. The rejection What's the lesson? He continued ministering. He did not let that stop. Look, being, getting your feelings hurt, being made bitter is a powerful force. It can knock you out of the race. So the writer says, let us, you know, laying aside the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with, indil- with diligence the race that is set before us, laying aside the sin that so easily trips us up. Whether it's your sin or the sins of others, Christ's response to their rejection is, fine. The work goes on, with or without you. He went about teaching because ignorance could not be ignored by him or by God. You know, there's a saying, you think education is expensive? Try ignorance. It's true. This is consistent with his deity. And that's what catches my eye when I read this. So I don't want to come up and say, let me tell you about all all the daggers and stabbings and bad things people say. They don't know what they're talking about. My side of the story is right and theirs wrong. Instead of doing that, I'd rather say, let me tell you about some of the pain and how to push through it. Because one day I'm going to stand before Christ and I don't want him to say, you were almost there, kid. So you got that whole feeling hurt thing. And then you stopped. Who bewitched you? Having begun in the spirit, were you made perfect by this kind of behavior? I don't want to hear that. And so I take the pain knowing, knowing that he knows what he's doing. And I'm submitted to that whether I like it or not. And what can hell do against a Christian who thinks that way? So he concerned himself with the word of God. And he taught God's word. Matthew 4. Jesus answered and said, and this is basic, but we need a reminder. It is written. This is the scripture. This comes from the word of, from the throne of God, from the mouth of God. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Remember that the next time you think that I need more than Bible, I need this and I need that. Yeah, you do need those other things perhaps, but you need the Word of God always. No matter what. Don't let Satan steal, wash or spill the wind from your sails. Verse 7, And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. <laughs> so, there you are in hell and you're sitting not the people but hell itself, the, the inhabitants say, "Aha, we shut him down in his own hometown." And then word comes back, but now he's 12 times stronger. He's sending out the apostles and he's giving them specific instructions. If Nazareth did not want to hear it, he had others who would. And he had so many that he had to deputize his men. 
his servants, and that's what the servants are, began to send them out two by two. It's better to go out two by two. This is an excellent pattern for us. One to encourage, one to support, one to even give you mild nudges of rebuke. Uh, we, we gain so much by another person's interaction. Not too much of the time, but enough of the time. Uh, I think in a, a pastor in preparation for a sermon, for example, that's a filtering time. It's a time where he filters out a lot of stuff that he can't say that he shouldn't say and brings in stuff that he can say and must say. And uh, that is the companionship of the Holy Spirit with him. For all of us, going at it alone is not the ideal. And uh, it has to happen sometimes, but it's not the ideal. Deuteronomy 17 comes, you know, in the strength of two or three witnesses. He continues here in verse 7, and gave them power over unclean spirits. Was there this heightened demonic activity in the days of Christ? Some good Bible teachers believe there were. Um, I don't. I, I don't think so. I think what happened is that the unclean spirits are still here with us today. We, you know, don't think that we need to see them running around with you know pitchforks and axes attacking people. They're very subtle. For example, those who run Twitter and Mugbook, these people have unclean spirits. I mean. Nancy Pelosi, she's got an unclean spirit. Amen. Christ would, would liberate her from that if she would just let him. And she's not the only one. We have whole parties of people out there. Nazi Germany was a whole nation of people with an unclean spirit. Dafira. I mean, it's just goofy almost. Except it was too violent and malicious to be laughable. Those who gobble up lies... And spread them. Someone's, you know, uh, attacking somebody for trying to say life begins at conception. And then physically attacking them. You telling me that person doesn't have an unclean spirit? They get so bent out of shape when they're confronted with morality. They get violent. Want to riot. Uh, What would happen, you know, a few weeks ago if Christ were walking through Portland? Casting out evil spirits. So my point is, I don't believe that uh, there was this heightened activity. Any, I think it's here with us to this day. And we uh, defeat it with truth. And those who we cannot minister to the truth, what do we do? Well, Christ tells us, walk away. We're coming to that. Verse 8, he commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals, and not to put on two tunics. Now we have some, uh, I guess, conflicts on the surface here. Because the taking of a staff and sandals is permitted here by Mark, but it is prohibited on the same account by Matthew and Luke. Which one is right? Well, when Matthew says, Jesus speaking to them, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staves, plural staves, sandals, an extra pair. These are backup sandals. These are backup staves. These are backup clothing that Christ has prohibited. He says, listen, I don't want you packing heavy. I want you going light. I want you to trust me. When he's sending them out, okay, so he says, I'm going to send you out. And they start packing. He knows they're going to do this. So he, he gives them his orders. So I don't want you packing as though you might run out of something. You know, some of you, when you travel 
You overpack, do you not? Some of you take like five bottles of mouthwash just in case you run out of one. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But you got you. We all understand this. Here it is staff singular. In Matthew and Luke, it is plural. You say, who takes an extra staff? One commentator actually brings that up. Who takes an extra staff? Well, look at it this way. If you're an outdoorsman in those days, and you can't just go and buy one at, you know, um, the outdoor shop, if, you know, carrying a knife and whittling one down is just not an option for you. They only had two swords amongst them, incidentally. And you needed this staff also for self-defense, not only against brigands on the road, but wild dogs, uh, wolves, anything that would come against you. This was an important tool. And they, they do break. You stir a fire with your staff long enough, that tip is going to break. Soon, I mean, you know, just using it is going to break. And so if I were them and I said, my staff, I use my staff, thy rod and thy staff. I'm taking an extra one. It wouldn't take a lot to strap that over your shoulder. It'd be part of your little backpack. And so I think what is happening here is Mark is giving us the initial command and the prohibitions are what we're also getting in some of the other accounts and that there is no contradiction here uh, whatsoever. Uh, they were to trust for their provisions according to his instructions. If I have sandals and I'm going on a trip and I'm worrying about one of those leather straps. I mean, what happens if you go... If, when I was in sales, I traveled around a lot. Um, I didn't sell anything. I just traveled around. And I remember one trip, my shoelace broke. I could just go down and get another shoelace. But what if I couldn't? I'd look like a goat like Ellie Mae from the Clampets if I put a, a rope through my laces or something. So I'm just saying these things are readily available to us, and they were not to them. And if they're being sent out, I'm taking a backup pair of shoes. And even the military issue you two pair of boots uh, when you join because uh, they're that important. And so that is my um, accurate unraveling of that verse, and I'll now wait for the applause. <laughs> verse 10, and he also said to them, in whatever place you enter, oh, I forgot, we've got a time restraint here. I'm just yakking away. Verse 10, and he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart. And say, they were not to go into a town and relocate. So, you know what? I like that guy's house better. He asked me last night, come over. I'm going there. He's got a pool. I mean, it'd be crazy not to go. And Christ is saying, I, I don't want you to do any of that. Now, he's going to modify all of this later in the ministry towards, as he closes in on the cross. Luke 22. Luke has this account plus the one we're reading in Mark. And Jesus said, he said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack and sandals, and we're not to think they went barefooted, did you lack anything? They said nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Pretty radical. He's reversing everything. Because he's preparing them for resistance. For opposition. And he's telling them, I need you to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I need you to be prepared. The sword. I've used this example uh, before. Uh, Christian churches in the Sudan who did not have an armed guard were slaughtered. And the ones who had armed guards were bypassed. 
Uh, churches today, they should have means of protecting themselves from those who are wicked. We are not to use the sword to spread the gospel as Islam, as the popes have done. We are not to use violence to preach Christ. There is no record in the book of Acts or Revelation during the Great Tribulation period of the apostles or the martyrs weaponizing themselves uh, to defend themselves in their faith. However, the Lord does not rule out times of self-defense. And when the disciples said to him, we have two swords, he didn't say, get rid of those things, trust me. He just moved on. Um, <clears throat> I mean, if you, if, 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 if you invade my home and I'm next to stuff, there's going to be a lot of hate and discontent coming your way. It's your own doing. But I'm not going to let you come in and molest my family. What kind of witness for Christ would that be? So, uh, there you have. We are free to protect ourselves when possible under certain conditions, though, such as with Stephen and James and Paul. We're not. And the Holy Spirit will guide us through those details. Verse 11. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Surely I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. And so there it is. He says, don't waste time. Those whom you can't reach, move on. Uh, you, you cannot force them into the kingdom. Sodom and Gomorrah did not have the chance that these folks are getting and to reject the message that you're giving them is going to be actually, they're going to be held accountable for the light that they refused. Um, when, he, I, when he says, shake the dust off your feet, he says, don't, let, don't let that stuff cling to you. Make this statement to them that you denounce any association with their rejection and you salvage nothing from them. Unfortunately, that I think many times we in Christianity don't learn this lesson. And we look to salvage and we look to kind of buddy up with, the, with those who reject Christ. Verse 6, so, I mean on doctrinal issues and how we conduct ourselves. Verse 12, 12, pardon me. So they went out and preached that people should repent. Always repentance is uh, the vanguard of the message. The impenitent cannot be saved. You cannot say, yes, I gave my life to Christ. He is Lord and Savior, but I'm really a good guy. And I, because that's, I really don't need him as a Savior. I'm just, you know, you, you must come face to face with your sin. John 16, verse 8. And when he has come, that is the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin. And that's what uh, calling the people to repent is all about. Peter did it. He said, repent. The times of refreshing may come. And we are to do it too. If the person doesn't want to hear that they're sinners before a holy God... Then we shake the dust off our feet. If they don't want to hear it, what are we going to do? We put tracks in their sandwiches. <clears throat> Verse 13. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, the idea of the oil, it's not the same word uh, for oil that is uh, krios, with, which is used for Christ. It's a different word. Uh, Aleph. Uh, oh, I won't say it. It's Greek. I started to say it, and I just leave it alone. Uh, my point is, there's no power in this oil. It is more uh, for care. They're ministering to people. That's why it says, anoint with oil many who were sick and heal them. They're separate. It's not a magic oil. 
you rub it on and then you'll feel better later. Um, that's not the idea. The idea is that you, uh, you, you deal with the spiritual ailment of demons and you minister to the people with care. Ergo, the oil and symbol of the oil. And I could go into a whole long thing, and I think we did it with James. Uh, and, then, and then there are uh, the healings. Uh, the Good Samaritan, of course, he bandaged the wounds of the injured man. He poured oil and wine on, uh, uh, on his wounds, and he took care of him. And it, it tells us just like that, and I'm going to read it. Luke 10, 34. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And so there's not this impersonal, uh, you know, I'm just doing this for Christ kind of a thing. There's also ministering to the person as a person. Well, uh, the lessons coming out of this in closing, closing is those who preach Christ, whether from a pulpit or from wherever you find yourself, will from time to time suffer rejection and hurt, sometimes more than others. Sometimes just in the work of ministry as a believer, whether it is in the church or not, you're going to suffer hurt. What are you going to do with it? You're going to turn tail and run? or Because uh, you're just going to get hurt the next place eventually and turn tail and run there too probably, unless you learn. Another lesson we get is the work goes on nonetheless. The workers are sent out in loyal service. They're expected to obey what they were told and to carry out their mission. And we'll get, they'll, they'll come back and they will report on the victorious service for the Lord. Uh, my last point to revisit is I believe that all of us from time to time should re-familiarize ourselves with the definition straight out of the dictionary of the word loyalty. Because you just can't do much where there's no loyalty. Uh, you see a strong church out there that sticks to the word, that works to love people, that works to minister, it's because they have loyal people there. Because without loyal people, loyal to the Lord, loyal to each other, loyal to truth, to the mission, without that, what, what can you do? Uh, nothing. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father... The lessons that come to us always centered on what you want from, from us, those who love you, and what you offer to those who may not have received you. And We just read about you preaching in the synagogue at Nazareth and people rejecting you. And today there are people that hear your words still out of your Bible from your servants some reject and some do not. Some are saved and some are condemned. If you're listening now and you've not ever opened your heart to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but you know you're a sinner, you know you've broken his commandments, you know that he would be justified in condemning you forever to a real hell for refusing him. If you'd like to be saved from the judgment to come, if you'd like to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you must open your heart. You must admit that you are a sinner, that you break his commandments, and that he is the only Savior, that he is the one that forgives, that loves, 
and that works with us. And not just once, for a lifetime. If you make this prayer in earnest, God will receive you. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner and I do repent and I come to you and I ask you to forgive me. There is nowhere else to go. And I ask that from this day forward, you would be not only the one that forgives me, but the one who rules over my life and I give it to you. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not be ashamed of the prayer, but may they be eager to step forward and say, I've just opened my heart to Jesus Christ. These things we commit to your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.